This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards and I've got David on the phone here with me. Say hey, David. I'm back again. I do exist. <laughs> yeah, you do exist, but you're on the road again and doing some hunting. So why don't you tell everybody what you're up to? Well, I got a wild hair to uh, put in for a javelina tag. And then uh, the same time I javelina tag I, that I drew this last November down here in Arizona opened. There is a uh, a coos or cows or cow deer tag, and so we are uh, searching in the snow and the rain and the mud for some little little javelina and some deer, some baby deer, <laughs> some baby deer. Yes, yeah, I don't know if the javelina or the deer are bigger, but we're looking for them. I haven't found any yet. Well, if you get something, we'll have to. Uh have a little high mountain seasonings on some and and see how they taste i'm sure if we took some venison rub and we put on that deer it tastes just fine don't you think yep well we have a uh, joe bartlett with us and he's gonna film it so we'll get it on film and then we can uh, cook up some javelina and tell everybody how it tastes yeah that's a good deal the other day in fact yesterday i made some fish tacos with some of that bayou bass on some crappie and i'll tell you what man that was a delicious delicious meal again for everybody that's out there if you haven't tried high mountain seasonings yet for either elk deer antelope crappie walleye anything that you're eating you should definitely try it you can go to himtnjerky.com try out some of their kits they've got some amazing kits for you know the diy guy who's going out there making his own jerky or sausage or fish tacos it doesn't matter they've got a little bit of something for everybody so check those guys out and see what they've got to offer and i have a special guest in the studio today somebody that i met actually last year it's kind of funny because i've worked with his wife for like six years and hadn't really spent any time with him finally got to meet him and he's an amazing fisherman hunter outdoorsman he's a father an artist a teacher uh, zach even uh, is my guest and he's done a little bit of everything people in riverton and lander know a lot about him just because his art is in a lot of places uh, but he spends a lot of time in the outdoors he spends a lot of time doing art L- lately he's been redoing his basement which is a whole nother story but uh you know he's he's done a lot of things in his life he's an athlete he was a state champion in track and field went to Shadron state college which i also went to um, and did my master's degree there he's done work for cabela's with his artwork and i will tell you again people in this area know all about you from your fishing and hunting so zach welcome to the show hey thanks happy to be here yeah it's good to have you man um you know we talked I guess it was last March at the bow hunting convention about having you on the podcast and visiting about hunting and fishing. And we were like, yeah, we're going to do that. And of course it's now December, late December and you know, life kind of gets crazy and things get busy. Time flies. Yep. Yeah. But it's really good to have you. <clears throat> yeah. So I'm happy to be here. Start off with this, you know, you, you're an outdoorsman and artist, you know, tell me as a kid, what, what got you hooked on the outdoors and what also got you hooked on art? Well, man, you know, it's kind of hard to put, 
my finger on kind of what got me hooked on the outdoors. It's always been something that kind of came naturally to me is, I mean, as young as I can remember, I was always fascinated with, with being outside, climbing hills around Green River, hitting the river, fishing. I just, I've always had an attraction to it. You know, some of my earliest memories, I can, they're a little bit skewed. I know that looking back, but I can remember catching like bluegills that in my mind's eye were like the size of a frying pan with my grandpa <laughs> and my dad. <laughs> yeah, heck yeah. And I mean, I couldn't have been more than, I don't know, if I were to guess like three when I was, when I was having that experience. But some of my earliest memories go back to, you know, real and largemouth bass in with my uncle up in South Dakota. And just, I mean, it's always been something that has appealed to me, you know, growing up in Green River. I mean, my brother spent a lot of time just hiking down to the river and, and fishing during the day, during the summers while my mom was working. And I always enjoyed it, but yeah. And and I'm sure the art kind of played into that too. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, going way back, I remember um, having the option to sign up for like after school art programs and stuff, and um, always took advantage of that, even when I was really young. And uh, again, it's just one of those things that kind of came naturally, just always appealed to me. Yeah. 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 So, Zach, what got you uh, involved in competitive sports? Uh, again, it's one of those things that <laughs> it's just always been just, I've been drawn to that kind of stuff. I don't really, I wouldn't have considered myself like super competitive. Like in sports when I was in high school, I think about the time I finally realized that I was maybe a little bit bigger than a lot of my <laughs> competitors. I, I started enjoying football and like running over people and throwing people around and whatever. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's just always been something I've enjoyed. I think what draws me to it, just like with hunting and fishing and mountain climbing and everything else is just um, pushing myself and trying to accomplish something, you know, that takes a little bit of effort. Really. I mean, the fact that I didn't really have any financial backing going into college um, from any other source, sources other than like scholarship opportunities, uh, that's, I really took advantage of, of the scholarships going into college. And that's why I pursued art. I had an art scholarship and um, athletics at a track scholarship going into. So, I mean, the, the scholarships played a big role in, in you know, my, my college athletics career, I guess. Yeah, and I see a parallel to a lot of outdoorsmen that they were involved in some kind of athletics and they kind of have that same mentality that you're talking about of, you know, I want to accomplish something. So I push myself and kind of the same thing in hunting and fishing. You set goals for yourselves going, going into the season, right? Like if it's lake trout fishing, you might set a goal to catch, you know, your personal best or catch one in a different method than you've ever tried before or maybe go to a different location you know you always have some kind of goal just like with you probably with your elk hunting too you know you have new goals every year and i think with athletics it's very similar yeah sure i could yeah i mean and i think i just like to push myself and um, i have a tendency of if i start something kind of go all in (laughs) regardless Mm -hmm. of what it is and it's just athletics kind of lends itself to that as well as the hunting and fishing and stuff so yeah that makes sense so when you were growing up you know who is your mentor and what did you learn you know growing up that maybe you're applying now to your kids well I had a lot of mentors growing up um my dad wasn't always around growing up my parents divorced when I was in third grade maybe so I had oh guys like Rudy Gunner who was also my art teacher in high school um big outdoorsman himself great artist I had uh Mr. Welsh 
teacher in middle school who taught fly tying and as well as the English classes. <laughs> um, That's awesome. I had Ray Tilburg. He was a local gunsmith who uh, taught me how to, I mowed his lawn in return. He taught me how to reload 30 out six shells. Uh, it's a guy trade. named Mr. Beaver. I mowed his lawn as well. And uh, that was before I could drive. And so I'd finished mowing his lawn. And, and uh, as I was waiting for my stepdad to come pick us up, He'd bring me inside and show me all of these old bamboo fly rods and nymphs that were woven and just that got me into fly tying and fly fishing. And I mean, man, I had a lot of mentors for sure. So I guess what I take from all of those guys and I try to pass on to my kids is just exposure to all those different things. They were kind enough to kind of mentor me and show me a lot of those things and, um, just I got a huge variety of knowledge and, and whatnot from those guys. So I just I just try to pass that stuff along to my kids as well as kids that I teach and stuff too. So, so Zach, what would you say to people out there, you know, you've, you've grown up in Wyoming and you had all these opportunities. The families that are starting in the outdoors in areas like Lander, Riverton, what would you say to those young families starting the outdoors? And how, how, do, how do they get involved? I think just um, search out people that are already involved, you know. Get to know people in the community that can kind of mentor you um, as a parent, as well as, you know, people that can mentor your kids as well and get you out there and get you experiences, ice fishing and hunting and just, you know, whatever you want to explore, find people that uh, will kind of take you under their wing and, and show you that kind of stuff. Um, there's plenty of people, at least in these communities that we live in, that are more than happy to take people out and, and show them the ropes, so... What's maybe a good starter activity for people if they want to just get exposed to getting outside and getting out in the outdoors? I'd say one of the easiest is probably just hiking. You know, we've got these great opportunities right here in the Wind River Mountains just to hike. And man, you start hiking those mountains and all of a sudden you're like, hmm, elk tracks. Maybe I want to elk hunt. And you see the, the body of the water and you're like, man, next time I come up here hiking, maybe I should bring a fishing rod. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. hiking's super easy. There's, I mean, you don't have to invest in anything in any special equipment or anything like that. Um, yeah, I just think hikes are one of the best kind of starters for people to get into it. Well, in Sinks Canyon, man, you don't need anything. Like you said, you just need a pair of shoes and just take off on some of those trails that they have, like that nature trail, super simple and oh, yeah, you know, for sure. pretty out and you can yep. take everybody. Heck yeah. Yeah. I think just simple hikes are a great way to start. Yeah, absolutely. So for you, I mean, you've been raising your kids in the outdoors. So what are your favorite activities to do with your kids currently? Oh, man. Um, hiking, backpacking. Um, a few years ago, um, it took some convincing, but I convinced my wife to rent llamas. <laughs> and my kids, they're now 13. They just turned 13. I've got 13-year-old twins. And uh, a few years ago, I thought, eh, they're getting old enough that they can put on some miles in the backcountry. And I just thought you know, to keep them entertained. I think having some animals with us would be a great way to kind of keep their interest. And, uh, I finally convinced my wife to do it. And, uh, yeah, hiking backpacking trips with llamas has been awesome. We've done it three consecutive years now in a row. And, and, uh, it's pretty cool because, you know, the kids they'll hike seven, eight, nine miles a day and not complain at all because those llamas keep them so i guess content (laughs) (laughs) it's a distraction yeah distraction from the pain and the suffering (laughs) that i'm putting them through now um so yeah that's been great i've taken them fishing forever since they were really small we've taken them out fishing in the boat and then ice fishing and everything 
everything else. And now that they're old enough, we've started hunting a little bit. My daughter's still not super into it. Like she drew an antelope tag this year that I could not convince her to go try to fill. (laughs) (laughs) And I was kind of excited about that tag because I've never actually gone on a rifle antelope hunt. And I hear so many people talk about how it's like grocery shopping. You know, it's just like (laughs) you're out there seeing all these animals and stuff. And honestly, I think I've shot what? 12 antelope in the last 13 years with my bow um just getting leftover tags or whatever it took to get an antelope tag i would do and uh, just because i love archery hunting them so much and so i've never actually rifle hunted antelope (laughs) (laughs) but anyway i couldn't convince her to go do that and then uh so my son he was also old enough to hunt this year so hunting has become another one of those things that i like to get the kids out to do so hunting fishing backpacking you know, I took my son up Gannett Peak this summer. And so, yeah, I'm just trying to expose him to hopefully not too much at once. I don't want to burn him out, but yeah, I'm trying to expose him to as much as possible. That's awesome. Yeah. Makes for a fun, fun childhood. They'll look back on that and be I very hope so. grateful, I'm sure. Yeah, so I hope so. We got to talk about another one of our sponsors for just a few minutes. Um, PK Lures. It is ice fishing season. You talked about taking your kids ice fishing. Well, it is primetime ice fishing season and I know uh, it's been a difficult year for the ice fishermen. Typically, we've got a lot of ice right now, and there's not a lot of ice to be had. So if you're an avid ice fisherman, it's just been kind of a downer year. But I know Boyson uh, today, I I had a friend driving around, said that they're starting to get some ice. And I'm sure there's some other bodies of water around Wyoming that are starting to freeze over. But um, I know in the Midwest and the North, they've they've got plenty of ice at the moment. So if you haven't tried PK lures, you got to do it. Uh, The PK Spoon. I will tell you that red dot glow is a dynamite spoon if you're fishing for walleye through the ice. Um, I saw a post just today of some guys that were using the PK Rattler, which is a just a rattle bait, um, kind of a lipless crankbait, vertically jigging it through the ice and catching walleye. Go check them out, pklure.com. You can try those lures. Again, the tungsten predator is also really good for panfish if you're going after bluegill crappie yellow perts definitely a good good option to try and i know david when you get back you want to go do some of that um, as soon as you get back from your trip yes i do we need to go get the kids on a few fish through the ice so pk lure is definitely going to be and in the tackle box when we go out ice fishing you are known for your fishing and hunting abilities i want to focus on the fishing side today and get your perspective on fishing practices and techniques what is your all-time favorite fish species to pursue and why Oh my goodness. That's a loaded question. That's, that's a hard one, man. I've got certain fish that I just enjoy because of like the sentimental value going back to like experiences with them as a, as a kid. Um, man. So what are some of those? Well, so I laugh because it's almost embarrassing, but I was probably the only kid in Sweetwater County as like a third, fourth grader that had a subscription to Bassmaster magazine. <laughs> and well, that was primarily what was on TV when I was a kid is sure. bass fishing shows. Yeah. I had a list of all the shows on Saturday and Sundays um, and their times written down on this, the sheet of paper that I keep. And I would set my alarm on Saturday mornings and get up and start oh, watching yeah. them, man. <laughs> Absolutely. And most kids were watching cartoons and I was watching fishing shows, Bill Dance and Hank Parker and all those guys. And primarily they were bass fishing. Sure. And, uh, so I've got family in South Dakota. So, um, we'd go up in the summers and I'd finally get to use all those 
stupid bass lures that I had in my tackle box. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, bass in that aspect, as far as sentimental value, goes way back. But, man, grayling, grayling is kind of what I learned to fly fish on. So they kind of have a special part or spot in my heart. Great fighters, by the way, as far as their size. Man, yep. grayling are awesome. But, man, we had some great adventures, like in high school with buddies learning how to fly fish and fishing grayling out of float tubes and uh, up above Pinedale. But I would say, man, golden trout, they're pretty awesome because it's kind of like a destination fish. And that took me a lot of years. When I moved up here, um, gosh, I moved to Lander like 15 years ago, maybe. And, uh, man, I followed a lot of wild goose chases trying to find goldens up here in the winds. And uh, it was before they kind of started restocking them again heavily or fairly heavily. And so I spent a lot of time put on many miles before I ever found one. And so they've kind of got a special spot in my heart. And I love the the country you find them in. It's just awesome. But I think if I had to pick one, man, I don't know. Big lake trout, maybe. <laughs> I was going to say, you're probably going to say big lake trout. Yeah. I mean, I love brown trout too, though. Man, fall I browns. I love them. But uh, if you had to put me on the spot and I had to pick one, I probably think about fishing for big lake trout more than any other fish. And why is that? Oh, man, I could go on and on. But I think it's because in part it's a lot like hunting in a way. Um, It's not the way I fish for them. I like to jig for them vertically. And there's a lot of just it's like you're hunting them down. Um, They can be hard to catch even when you're sitting on top of them sometimes it's it's very difficult to find them but when you do if you can get them to bite it's so rewarding it's so cool i mean just like to kind of i don't know if it's if you want me to get into my techniques and whatnot too early in the podcast here but um (laughs) (laughs) i mean i get an adrenaline rush from fishing for lakers and this sounds super dorky and people are like whatever but um I get so passionate about them as I'm talking about them. I can tell people's eyes just glaze over as I'm getting excited about lake <laughs> trout. Usually when I'm talking to them, they're like, what, whatever. But <laughs> I just, I just love the adrenaline rush I get from them. So as I put around in my boat or I'm sitting on the ice and, and those fish come in, I can see them on the graph. Then I I've fished for them enough now that I've learned their body language on that graph. And when I see them, Initially, I don't get too excited depending on what they're doing and kind of, I mean, where they're located is, I mean, they can be, if they're hugging the bottom, I get excited. If they're three feet off, I'm not as excited. And when you're fishing in a hundred feet of water, a three foot difference, most people are like, what's like, what's the difference? But it's, I've learned to realize that those fish that are hugging the bottom, there's a better chance they're going to bite usually. So when I see that, I get excited. And then as I've, I've, got my jig down there and I'm trying to convince them to bite. I'll notice certain behavior on the fish finder and all of a sudden my heart, I can, that adrenaline rush just surges through my veins, man. And it's just, I hold my breath Mm. and I'm like, I'll tell if I have somebody fishing with me, I'm like, get ready, get ready. And 90% of the time I can call the bite. (laughs) (laughs) And so when I see that behavior, it's just, there's nothing like it. And then when you do get that hit, sometimes it's so subtle that when I set the hook, I'm almost surprised that there's actually a fish on the end of the line. It's like, holy cow, I barely felt anything, but I've trained myself, I think over the years fishing for them enough that, you know, you feel the slightest hint of a bite down there. Um, you set that hook and, uh, 
a lot of people think that a 30 pound lake trout is going to try to rip the rod out of your hand on the hook set uh, or on the bite but it's just like a perch all they're doing down there is they're sitting there and they're sucking that jig in and if you're not paying attention i've had friends sitting in the boat and it's happened to me too where i can tell a fish just sucked it in i'm kind of like ah, and i pause for a second and then i, f- I feel them spit it out <laughs> yeah it's like dang it i should have set the hook and uh plus there's there's not a there's not many freshwater fish at least not in wyoming that fight like saltwater style fish like you can't get a, a 20 30 40 pound fish every day in wyoming or out west that just you know pulls like that you know there's certain areas where sturgeon catfish and whatnot but they're just special you know and they're old and mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of those fish, I talked to one biologist who said that they had some Canadian biologists come down years ago who were experts in lake trout. And he'd said that they told him that they estimated that our fish here in Wyoming are about one year per pound. So you figure if you're catching a 40 pound lake trout, it could be 40 years old. And I know that I've heard of fish 15, year old, 15 pounds being over 20 years old. So that, I mean, they could be older than the pounds even say. So, yeah, it takes a long time to grow a big lake trout. Right, right. So, yeah, I don't, I think if I had to pick one, it might be lake trout. Goldens are a close second. Browns might be a close third, too. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's so hard to pick because there's so many great fish for different reasons. Right. And different seasons, even. Like, there's certain times of year, it's like, man, I want to go catch this. And certain times of year, I want to go catch that, you know? Yeah. Well, I don't know if you're like me, but there's times of year where like I'm focused on whatever it is during that season yep. and I couldn't care less about like, you know, the next season, but then the next season rolls around and it's like, I can't wait to go burbot fishing. And it's like two months ago, I couldn't care less about burbot. <laughs> right. Right. But no, I'm with you. I, I get it. I, I think, uh, too, that like lake trout have a special mystique for especially people out West because they really are the biggest fish we can get. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as far as other than sturgeon, like maybe a paddlefish or something like that, but like right. a real predatory type fish, they're the biggest, baddest out here. Right. And something that's going to strike like a lure, you know, mm-hmm. some of the bigger fish, catfish, sturgeon and stuff, you're catching them primarily on like dead baits or, or just bait, you know, sitting there waiting for a bite, but Lakers will chase things down and attack it, you know, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And you'll have them up towards the top and you're like okay i got this fish and then they take you all the way back down on the bottom I and mean, they're just super powerful oh yeah yeah and speaking of the top catching them on top waters is pretty fun too <laughs> see that's something i've never done and i know you've done that so somewhat well, somewhat well tell me about that like what's what's that like i mean i imagine it's got to be something similar to like a you know trying to catch a muskie on top water or something like that yeah i don't from my limited experience, there's some guys out there that do it a lot more than I do. Um, and it's one of those things that I don't think many people are aware of. Um, but they don't make this giant explosion like you would see from like a pike or a muskie, at least in my experience. But it's still exciting to to have a very large fish coming up and, and hitting topwater baits. <laughs> But it's the, the, the occasions, the chances to be able to do something like that are pretty limited also. It's but, a seasonal thing, I'm sure. Yeah, it's, it's very seasonal, I would say. In my limited experience, like I said, there's guys that I know personally out there that do it a lot more than me. I don't claim to be an expert on it, but 
it is fun. The limited times I've had it work successfully. <laughs> You've been fishing in a lot of different places. You've caught a lot of different kinds of fish. We've talked about that before mm-hmm. you and I have. What do you think is the key to sustainable fisheries? I mean, you were just talking about how lake trout take forever to grow. We know that smallmouth bass in the West take forever to grow. Lots of these different species that we have here take a long time. So there's a lot more people fishing now. And mm-hmm. especially because of COVID. I mean, the the number of anglers out on the water is just way more than it was a couple of years ago. So for sustainability, especially out here for the next 10 years, what do you think is going to be a key to maintaining what we have or maybe even making it better? Well, I think one one key is uh, learning how to handle fish, maybe when not to fish for fish. So I love to fly fish too, and there's a lot of small streams, especially around this area that I fish, um, as well as the Green River and the Wind River, the Bighorn. You know, there comes a time during the summer, especially when we're at low water levels and um, like drought type, you know, scenarios. And when that water starts to really warm up, it's hard and it's hard to ask people to do it. But man, to to not fish when those water temperatures are really high, um, I think helps sustain our fisheries for sure. And kind of having that self-control, me being kind of a lover or appreciator of lake trout it's like just because the law says you can keep some of these fish maybe again it's kind of a self-control thing uh keeping the ego in check and whatnot but you know letting those fish go you know keep all the pups that you want i love i mean as far as trout go i don't think anything tastes better than small lake trout like those two pounders but you know i do not keep those big fish so i think just a little bit of self-management and, and just because the law says that you can don't necessarily do it all the time. You know what I mean? So yeah, keeping a 30 pound lake child's probably not going to be all that great for you anyway. No, I, I talked to a, a biologist who told me that the lake trout, at least the big ones in Flaming Gorge are, I think he said they were the second highest uh, mercury levels in the state. Yeah. And it's probably because, I mean, they're feeding on other and fish old. and they're old. Yeah, they got all that time to collect all that mercury. But yeah, and I mean, as a serious lake trout fisherman too, I don't know. I think you'd be kind of shunned by your buddies if you kept the 30 pounder. And I'm I'm not saying that you nobody should be allowed to. It's just if you figure them out and you get, you know, really good, if you're in that like top percentage of guys who are very efficient at catching certain kinds of fish, whether it be lake trout or anything else, you're not the average guy that those regulations were built around. You have to maybe take a little bit of responsibility upon yourself and do things like maybe let some of those bigger fish go. So that's just my opinion. So it makes sense. Makes sense. And I think too, just, you know, I guess getting those kids involved and stuff, you know, in fishing is going to help sustain those resources also, because as long as there's interest money flow from tags and things like that that's all going to be helpful down the road too so well and you brought up seasonal fishing we had pete main on i don't know a year year and a half ago and he's a big musky guy you know and he was talking about that you just he said i just won't fish for muskies in july and it's that, right it's that reason that he said nine out of ten fish that you catch and you take out of the water you unhook you put back in are gonna die because it's just too hot right and so i think you know warm warm temperatures go fish for a warm water species you know go yeah. fish for a bass or something like that that can handle it yeah and there's times like november where i won't fish for lakers um i know they're spawning and again guys will say it's legal and that's that's cool you can go do whatever you want to do i'm just saying that i'm not going to do it 
and uh, I've got my reasons because I can go, I feel like I can catch those fish throughout the rest of the year. Why do I need to go bother them at that time? You know what I mean? Right. So I'll go fly fishing for brown trout in November. <laughs> well, that's a great time to catch browns too. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, so I'm, I'm not going to go out there and risk snagging these fish and ripping their sides open and stuff intentionally or by accident, you know, so. Yep. Makes sense to me. Yep. So what do you see as one of the biggest threats of fishing today? I don't know. I don't get this like dire sense that fishing's in trouble. I see some of the biggest threats to some of my fishing holes <laughs> as being like social media. <laughs> oh, for sure. We'll talk a little bit about that because I think that there is some potential issues there with social media and fishing. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not here to complain about social media or any of the people that are involved with it necessarily, but it's just something you can't help but pick up on. Right. People love to share information and that's awesome. Forums, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. But you know, as other States get more crowded, like we in Wyoming love to complain about Utahns and Coloradoans that come in and, and, uh, you know, take over the river where we, we're used to fishing. But <laughs> I think it's so easy now for people to post something and for it to catch people's attention. And then they start ask, asking questions. And before you know it, you know, a spot that you fished since you were a kid is now packed with, with people, you know, and that's just the nature of the beast. It's how it is. And I know that sounds maybe selfish, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's something I've noticed, you know, over the last, I don't know, decade. And I think a lot of it's contributed to social media and news articles, TV shows have been written about certain areas and whatever. But I mean, I don't know if that answers your question. I mean, I don't see like fishing as being in like dire straits or anything, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's just some, something I've noticed about some of my, my personal areas. I think I just get a lot of attention via social media. One of the things I worry about for like your primary fishery for lake trout is invasive species, just because we do have people that come from all over the place and fish that body of water. You know, that is a concern um, for me, you know, because I mean, I've been fishing Flaming Gorge since I was a little kid. So are you saying those people are invasive species? <laughs> <laughs> no, not exactly. But well, maybe. I'd agree. Uh, I mean, <laughs> no, but it's just like, you know, zebra mussels, things like that. That's I, true. That yeah. could be an issue. And I know burbot are a new addition to Flaming Gorge and that's got its own, you know, people got their opinions on that too. Right. No, that's a great point. And uh, yeah, I guess I, I hadn't even considered the like invasive species other than the people but <laughs> but yeah i mean burbot have kind of man i used to love fishing for smallmouth bass Me growing up too. because i oh grew up gosh. in green river and i did not own a boat my family didn't have a boat but man i could go out there and walk the banks and fish off the rocks all day long for smallies and catch them all day long oh yeah yeah god some of the crazy stuff we used to do out there <laughs> not this go go off track too much but i think about like god bless them my parents drop me off out there and then leave us for a day or come back the next day <laughs> the amount of rattlesnakes we'd run into and that loose rock falling into the lake and just god it was an adventure but anyway sorry to get off course there but um yeah the smallmouth they've taken a big hit in the gorge and i think primarily because of the burbot um smallies are big big time crawfish feeders and i think those burbot have really cut back on those smally populations and they're eating the smallmouth as well but and then the uh the mussels as well it makes me wonder you know 
how that would affect that body of water. Obviously you're hoping that that stuff never, never gets there, but man, no, it seems like a tough Scary. thing to stop. It is, especially when 99% of the time when, when I'm launching my boat, <clears throat> there's nobody manning the, the, the docks. Cause I mean, it's you, early you can't ask those guys to work 24 hours a day. And, yep. Yeah. So I think about that too. Like I was there, I guess it was last year. Same thing. I was there at like three in the morning. Right. You know, and granted my boat hadn't been out of the state. So, I mean, it's not a uh, threat, but you think about that, like, you know, somebody could show up from a, a body of water out hundred percent in the East and. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you're on the, the water at six, they're not there. And I'm not saying that they should be, but I mean, they're not. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's just something that I, I think about too with Boyson even, you know, or any of our big bodies of water mm-hmm. here. I mean, it could totally change Jackson the lake. dynamics of the, Oh yeah, for yep. sure. Could totally change the lake. hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. Cause I don't know, like forage species wise, you know, for, for lake trout, for example, you know, the, the fish that the lake trout are eating are probably subsisting on some of those plankton and some of those other things that could get filtered out. hundred percent. Yep. It's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. It would totally change the food chain if those muscles got in there for sure. Sure. So when you're, we've talked about some of your values, like selective harvest and things like that. Like when you're fishing and some of the values that you have, when you're teaching your kids or, you know, kids in Lander about fishing, what kind of values are you looking to instill in them or maybe at least get them to think about? I'd say probably more than anything, maybe, um, appreciation for not only the, the fish, the game species, whatever, um, but also the environment that you're, you're out partaking in and, um, yeah, appreciation for all that stuff. Um, and as a teacher, I hear so often kids talk about, I can't wait to get out of lander or whatever. And it's like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. Like, geez, I can't wait to get out of Wyoming. What are you talking about? Have you ever been to Yellowstone? No, there's people coming from halfway around the world to come to Yellowstone. You should go check it out sometime, you know? And so trying to install that, still that appreciation and as well as respect, you know, and I try to teach my own kids those same, same values. It's like, respect the fish, respect the wildlife that you're dealing with and, um, just appreciate what we, what we have. So I'd say those are kind of the main things, but yeah, that's good. Uh, you're, you're pretty well known for, uh, being the, the lake trout master. Am I? What are some tips and tricks for, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in certain circles, guys know that Zach catches big lake trout. <laughs> so what are some tips and tricks to catch more lake trout? Man, first of all, I don't, I don't know if I want to like accept that I'm that well known for catching big lake trout. But <laughs> you, you are. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a probably a good thing I don't live closer to those lake trout because <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's all I'd ever do. Right now, I have to travel a little bit to get to them, but um, it's probably fortunate for them and me and my wife that I don't live closer. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so, as far as like tips and tricks, is that what you asked, David? Yeah. Um. Man, I don't know. I I guess learning presentation is pretty important. Um, learning the habitat that they like to kind of hang around in, and and all these lakes throughout the state, whether it be Jackson Lake or a lot of these lakes along the foothills of the Winds or Flaming Gorge or wherever those lakers are found. I I, I find that no lake is the same. Um, it seems like the fish all kind of, um, behave a little bit differently in a lot of those, 
those lakes, but you know, primarily trying to learn a specific lake, talking to locals and stuff to see kind of what the general pattern is seasonally and uh, for those individual bodies of water. But I mean, as far as tips and tricks, kind of in generic terms, I think um, for for big lakers, I mean, you can find those suckers in like five feet of water in certain bodies around the state. Um, I mean, I uh, as well as Colorado, I've seen videos of guys um a guy sent me a video i I can't remember if it was blue mesa but he's got his gopro facing down this hole and like a 30 pound lake trout comes swimming by in like five feet of water and grabs his jig and off to the races he goes (laughs) (laughs) but uh speaking in real general terms i guess i like to find you know most of the the lake trout i fish for in 20 to 100 feet of water if you know i'd say primarily if i'm looking for like let's say pup lake trout because i kind of categorize lake trout into kind of two categories i guess i don't know if that's fair to say or not but in my mind that's kind of how i categorize them you've got pup lake trout which are like those two pounders right that they're trying to thin out in many bodies of water then you have the big boys so if i'm looking for pups if i was to go out without a fish finder like just fishing blind like say ice fishing or something i would probably drop something like a two inch three inch up to five inch tube jig maybe tipped with a little strip of sucker meat or some type of they, it seems like the pups really like some type of scent in my experience don't you don't have to have it but it makes a big big difference some days for those pups if i was to go out fishing for them blind i would drop that sucker down to the bottom reel it up a foot and sit there and jig for them now if you've got a graph or fish finder many times those those little lakers will cruise by shallow and the longer you sit there throughout the day you'll start to notice a pattern like okay half these fish are on the bottom half of them are 40 feet down and uh it's a blast to like see them come in on the fish finder when you're fishing over say 100 feet of water and start cranking like crazy and you get that jig up to 40 foot and bam you hit them while they're still there while they're still still coming through but yeah i definitely pay a lot of attention to my electronics and um yeah, uh, I'd say for the pups, you can catch them suspended all the way to the bottom in roughly 20 to 100 feet of water. I really like, I mean, those suckers can be out on big flats. I really concentrate on points and anything near a big drop off that might uh, drop off in like to the end of the main river channel. Seems like they like those edges and uh, points. Maybe that's too generalized, but <laughs> so yeah, they, they like that sucker meat spoons. Um, work great as well anything that you can tip with just a little strip of sucker meat and i don't mean like a big chunk of sucker meat i see guys just chunk it up i really like to cut it in the strips and then stick it on the hook and that gives it kind of a natural flow that looks a little bit more like like a minnow or something too instead of just some big blob of sucker meat down there so as far as the big ones kind of the same thing i mean you're going to find them in 20 foot of water sometimes but primarily i'm looking like generically 100 feet of water is kind of where i like to fish for them and i really like to look for them on those edges humps and points um and then yeah man i could talk talk and talk and talk about setups and line and everything else but (laughs) we'll kind of go through like what is a good setup if you're gonna do kind of the whole spectrum there i mean what's a good setup for a person to take like if they're gonna take their kid um you know if you're fishing for pups I like like an like a light action spinning rod, um, jigging for pups out of the boat. A light action spinning rod with anything from well, eight to ten pound test. I seem to 
like if it's my kid i definitely want to be rigged up with eight to ten sometimes i'll fish them four to six pound test just because it's more fun with an ultralight <laughs> i actually find my hookups sometimes are better with an ultralight shorter rod as well but uh i like a light action um up to maybe a medium with eight pound test spinning rod for a kid and then um the bigger fish um, sometimes people are surprised when I tell them I like 12 pound mono and I'm catching 40 pound fish on 12 pound, pound mono, but I don't know if you've ever snagged 12 pound, pound mono. <laughs> it's tough. Good luck yeah. getting that sucker to break if you wanted it to. So it's plenty. Um, 12 pound mono. I pay real close attention. Again, I could nerd out about this, but I pay close attention to the line diameter. If I start to fish with like fluoro or something, because I've nerded out and tested different types of fluorocarbons and knots and everything else. And I found that the line diameter that matches that 12 pound mono is going to match the strength of the 12 pound mono more than what it says the weight is, the weight rating, the rating. is on the box. Yeah. So you might have to go up to like 15 to 17 pound, pound fluoro that you're using. So to match the strength of that 12 pound, pound mono, if that makes sense. So do you like the added value of the stretch in the mono? Does that make a difference with Lakers? I don't know if it does. I don't think so. I mean, when you're fishing for these fish down a hundred feet down and you're trying to set that hook on them when they're a hundred feet down in the water column, I'd say the least amount of stretch, the better, obviously. But, um, you know, but I haven't found a big difference between mono and fluoro and some guys will absolutely swear by the fluorocarbon, even for lake trout. I can't argue it just because maybe they've got different experience than, than me. But when I've tested, um, those lines, like I said, I've, I've nerded out, man. I've <laughs> hung, hung weights off of, of different types of lines in my basement and tested the stretch and the strength. And from what I found with just hands-on testing, this has been a handful of years ago, so maybe things have changed and God knows there's 800 different types of lines out there that I could have been testing. But I think I had like three different types of fluoros and a couple different monos. And uh, man, I found that the fluoro stretched as much as the, as the mono um, when, when hanging weights off of it. Um, I didn't find any advantage in anything <laughs> except the one thing I didn't test was, uh, and guys are probably like screaming at their headset or their radios right now. You know, I've, I know there's a difference and that's, that's cool. That's just my experience. I, I found the mono knots held up better. Gosh, I soaked, I did some more research after I did that little test and found that guys said, well, mono absorbs water over time as you're fishing throughout the day and the fluorocarbon doesn't. So the longer you fish, the more advantage the floral offers. So of course, what did I do? I, I dunked the line in, in a, in a bucket of water for a day and then did the test over and the, the mono performed even better. <laughs> <laughs> so man, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, like I said, I'm, I'm geeking out about that probably too much. You can edit all that stuff out if no, you want to, good. but I like, I like 12 pound test 12 to 15 and then um you know those big lakers because they're really a vertical fighter i mean you can land those suckers on a light action rod uh, i don't recommend it but they like to you, you get them up off the bottom and they like to go right back to the bottom and then they'll slowly swim along the bottom you get them up and they go right back to the bottom it's not like they're shooting out horizontally like a salmon or something sure but i like a medium medium heavy action rod whether it be a bait caster or a or a spinning rod and uh I like to have my bait casting reels 
with the, the handle on the left side so that I can manipulate the jig and everything with my right hand. I've never understood why people, like you watch bass, bass fishermen with these bait casters and they cast them out and then they switch hands <laughs> right. to start reeling in. But, uh, but yeah, that's my setup, I guess. No, that, that makes sense. And then as far as like, you know, if again, this is a new fisherman going out there trying to catch some lake trout. Mm. You're going with the tube jig maybe, or yep. I mean, what, or a spoon or what would be your recommendation? Yeah, I'd say just a handful of spoons and, you know, some white tube jigs, three to five inches maybe. And uh, you'd be set. So what is it about a tube jig that's so appealing to lake trout? I don't know. I don't know what it is. I think part of it is that it doesn't like, regardless of the angle, it just kind of looks like it could be a fish. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing that a fish can kind of cue into as far as like, eh, I don't know about the shape of that or whatever, but, and then just the subtle action that you have with those things. They're so versatile too, man. You can do all kinds of stuff with a tube jig, but I, I know one of my buddies, he's going to be listening to this. I guarantee it. Um, Josh, Hey Josh, how you doing? Hey Josh, um, <laughs> <laughs> he likes to, you know, kind of rig it to where, you know, there's some of the jigs that kind of come up through the center of the tube, not in the nose of the tube. Mm-hmm. And so it, I, I don't know, like, is, yeah. is that a big thing like well, for you? It's kind of is. Again, I've gone back like, I'll bet it was like eight, nine years ago. I actually took my underwater camera out and I rigged tube jigs like in different ways. Like what you're saying, I Mm -hmm. traditionally you're going to slide that jig head up inside the tube right to the head of it and then poke the eye out. Um, But if you scoot that head back a little bit, you know, half an inch from the head, then that jig is going to, when it's sitting there stationary in the water, it has a tendency for the tail to kind of hang down, right? But the further you put that jig head in the body, the more it levels that jig back out, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, and so looking at all that stuff on my underwater camera, I kind of figured out a system where the jig sits like the most level and I would do other little tricks and tactics to get it to sit even more level. Because another thing I found is as the water gets deeper, um, the tubes sag more and more. This is again, one of those dorky nerdy things that most people (laughs) aren't gonna get information. (laughs) Yeah. But when it comes down to it though, in a practical application, I don't know if it makes that much of a difference. (laughs) Because if they're going to eat it, they're going to eat it. Kind of, yeah. I mean, there's there's certain techniques with the tube that, you know, it might be advantageous for it to be further forward or further back. But for most of your just vertical presentations, may not be a bad thing to, you know, move it back in the body like your friend likes to do, for sure. It's just going to help it hold a little bit more horizontal. And then pay real close attention to, to when you're about ready to drop your jig down the ice hole or out of the boat. Um, where you're in line, where you're not is actually attached to the eyelet of that jig head because if it's towards the front, it's going to have a tendency to sag more. And if you can simply just take that knot and pull it around toward the rear end of the of the jig, it's amazing how much more vertical or horizontal it'll actually sit in the water. Of course, the moment you get a bite or something and you miss a fish, it's going to slide back around. But yeah, that's just a little tip, I guess. And that's a good one for crappie and walleye too. Yeah. I and mean, it really does make a difference. Yeah, any jig. You just pay attention to where that knot is on the eyelet and it can really change how your jig sits in the water. And one of the things that goes along kind of hand in hand with this, when you are presenting 
like say ice fishing and you're presenting to a lake trout, you see them come on the graph, you see them coming up. What do you do to trigger that fish into biting? Cause I know some guys they'll kind of pound the bottom and then maybe reel up towards the surface or maybe they'll, you know, pound the bottom and then hang it in the fish's face. I mean, what's, what do you, what do you find is all of, of it, the, man? All of them. <laughs> That's helpful. Oh my gosh. It's, you just don't know. There's yeah. certain days where certain presentations work um, better than others. And then there's times where it just depends on the individual fish. Holy cow. It's just like, it's hard to put your finger on, you know, what exactly is going to work that day. Like as I'm sitting there and I see fish come in on my graph there's days where I just, you know, just barely move that sucker and they seem to like that. There's times where you barely move it and they seem to like lose interest and they swim off. So the next one that comes in, you try to, you know, jig it a little bit more aggressively and they seem to like that and they hit it. And then the next fish comes in, you try to jig it aggressively and they ignore you and swim away. So then the next one, you hold it still and they hit it. <laughs> so man, it's just... You never know, and that's just part of the fun of lake trout fishing, I think. Some of those finer details, though, that, you know, I know, like, with splake, even, you know, they're a hybrid, mm -hmm. but sometimes they're funky like that. Like, you'll you'll drop it down the hole, and they'll just whack the snot out of it as it's falling, you yeah, know. Yeah, same and, with big lakers. Yeah, yeah, or sometimes, you know, you barely jiggle it. I mean, and, and that's what they want. Right. And if you jig it aggressively, they swim off. Yep. And so it's like, man, sometimes these fish can be a real pain, but that's yeah. part of the fun of it too. Right. Oh, yeah. It's part of out the fun. They want. But yeah, I mean, for people that don't haven't had that experience with Lakers, if you're sitting there and you're having fish come in and they're not hitting, do something different <laughs> <laughs> because if you're moving that jig, maybe they don't like it that much. So try something a little bit different. What I do find though, and this is just my observation. If you're fishing for pups, smaller Lakers, they seem to really like it moving. Like I try doing the finesse thing with smaller Lakers and sometimes it just doesn't hold their attention. Whereas if you just start bebopping that jig around and being aggressive with it, it just seems to trigger those little lake trout more. And say like the bigger ones can be much more subtle and way more pickier on the presentation. But what I found with the little guys, they like it moving. That's just my observation. I had a friend who he guides on Granby and when he's fishing for pups for people, he'll have them jig like a PK spoon because mm -hmm. it's real aggressive and they'll do that for pups. And then when they're fishing for the really big monster Lakers down on the bottom, they're using tube jigs mm -hmm. and it's kind of the same thing that you're talking about. You know, it's just a different presentation. Yep. Yeah. And I've even, even with spoons, sometimes you can just barely lift those things up off the bottom and then slowly drop them back down. And those Lakers will, the big ones will prefer that over like a ripping your traditional like ripping that spoon up and down you just never know <laughs> right and that's, but again, my that's suggestion fun. is if you're if you're targeting big lake trout and they're just ignoring you you see them coming in just try something different <laughs> either slow it down or speed it up so yeah yep. and maybe even sometimes just reel up to the surface fast and see if they'll chase it sometimes that can be a heart pounding event for sure <laughs> <laughs> it's like jaws is coming up after it well you can watch and all i've learned over the years watching those fish pursue a jig like that is you're just you just decide okay i'm done you start reeling up or you're just whatever getting frustrated and you start ripping that jig back up those fish a lot of times will pursue and uh you'll see them hit a sec an, another gear you get a lot of fish that will chase you 
or follow that jig back up to the surface, but it's kind of like they're not super serious about their efforts. It's just kind of like, eh, he's hanging 10 foot below that jig the whole way up. But suddenly you'll see him hit another gear. And as you're watching those two lines coming up, up on the fish finder, all of a sudden that fish just makes like, he just rockets to, and then man, my heart starts going <laughs> and my attention goes from that fish finder to my rod tip. And I'm like, come on, it's gotta be the best. What time of year is the, your favorite to go catch Lakers? Oh, when it's not archery season. <laughs> Honestly, man, I think you can catch those big Lakers pretty much all year um, or, or the small Lakers. Um, the, the big lake trout, they like to spawn in October, November. And so I totally avoid them at that point, at least the big ones. I think the little ones can still be caught, no problem, just all year. But my favorite time, if I had to pick one, I mean, June has always like been really good to me for whatever reason but i mean i had a great july um talking to some of the guides down um at least on flaming gorge i mean i'll hear them say you know august one year but the next august it's like the worst month that they had all year (laughs) whereas the previous year it was like the best month they had all year so i think a lot just varies um but if i had to pick one i love fishing june july i mean i'll fish march april December, January, February. <laughs> Last year I had a stellar day in February, man. Um yeah, I just as long as they're not spawning, it's a good time to be Laker fishing. I hear this question a lot and I thought about this after, you know, sending out some notes of kind of what we talk about, but there's been a debate in Wyoming for a long time, like what's the best lake trout fishery? Because we have two really, really good fisheries for mm-hmm. lake trout, um, Flaming Gorge, and then of course, Jackson Lake. So in your opinion, I know you've fished both, you know, what do you think are, are the best out of the two? I, it's hard to say. Um, I find myself on the gorge more just because that's my home stomping grounds. Um, but man, my family loves to go to Jackson Lake just because for one, it's so beautiful up there. Holy cow. The gorge is beautiful too in a different way. Um, but Jackson Lake, it's man, they both offer so much and you know, there's some, there's some pretty good lake trout lakes besides those two. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Those I would, are uh, a little lesser known, but yeah. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I could pick just one. I, I think I like going to different lake trout lakes for different reasons. So Sure. And I mean, the view at Jackson Lake, I mean, you have the Tetons and at Flaming Gorge, you've got like that desert, really pretty, like, mm. oh my gosh, like fire hole is gorgeous, you know, in, oh, yeah. in the evening. Those rocky bluffs and stuff. Oh, my and, yeah. And my kids, they, they love to shoot carp with their bows. So that gives it a plus to Flaming Gorge. You There's know, some big ones in there too. The small mouth, that's a plus in Flaming Gorge. Um, no. In the wintertime, the burbot bite can be really good. That's a plus for the gorge in my book. Um, as far as just lake trout, though, I, man, I don't know. I mean, I could go either way. <laughs> well, and they both have, what, the same size. I think the state record shared between the two because they both kicked out one the same size. Yeah, I think it is. Um, I think there's been much, m- many more bigger fish caught and released in, in the gorge um, than Jackson. I know, again, most of the guys in the big lake trout community are not going to keep even a state record fish, to be honest with you. They let them go. Yep. I mean, they're so old and it's such a resource that by the time they're 50 plus pounds, there's a lot of fish, well, you know, over 50 pounds have been released in Flaming Gorge. Who knows what's swimming around in Jackson Lake, though? Sure. 
And this, this is another bonus question for you because you have caught a number of different freshwater species, but pound for pound, what do you think are the, the strongest fighting fish in freshwater that you fish for? Man, you know, fish that stand out in my mind, pound for pound, I know some people are going to be like, what? But like grayling seem to fight pretty well with that forked tail. And there's something for about sure. those fish. They seem to just fight bluegills. <laughs> <laughs> pound for pound, we're talking now. Right, those right. little suckers will fight you for all they're worth. Um, geez, as far as trout go, as much as I love browns, there's just something about browns that I like a lot more than rainbows. But rainbows fight better. Smallmouth. Smallmouth bass fight really well. They fight hard. And then, um, you know, during my stint in Nebraska, that's where my in-laws are. And uh, that's where I worked as a graphic designer for Cabela's, um, wipers, man. (laughs) Wipers are an awesome fighting fish. And a lot of people are going, what's a wiper? Well, it's a white bass striper hybrid and they fight. And they're so much fun. I mean, you can catch them top water. They start doing that. They get all those bait fish going towards the surface and you can see just schools of wipers and, and white bass hitting these minnows on the surface and the seagulls are diving and man, it can be an exciting time you get into that kind of bite. Catfish fight pretty good too though. (laughs) Channel cats. Yep. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, smallmouth bass and bluegills. If I had to choose to and man wipers wipers. yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. i I would have to put wipers and smallmouth up there at the top for me because i think they are some fighting fish yep gotta love them Mm -hmm. so what is your favorite fish to eat um i'm not a huge fish eater but um in part it's just because i don't fish for the fish that i like to eat that often (laughs) i'm not a trout eater (laughs) i love catching them but I just don't like the taste of trout. They're too, I, I'm one of those guys. I don't like fishy taste and fish, to be honest with you. So I would say like perch, bluegills, walleyes, any of those I'd say are pretty darn good. I like to uh, cut them into strips and then deep fry them with some batter on them and eat them with like some spicy mustard or something. And the kids love that too. It makes a little bit of a mess, but uh, it's worth it. <laughs> oh, it's totally worth it. Yeah. And to tell you the truth, pup lake trout, so I said I wasn't a trout eater, but little lake trout, like those little two pounders, especially through the ice out of that cold water, there's no better trout in my opinion, as far as not tasting fishy. The char, char definitely tastes better. Um, mm, you know, yeah, when, right. you're, when you're talking like lake trout and the, you know, those species definitely taste better in my opinion than say like a rainbow trout or something Brook like trout, that. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, the, I think it has a lot to do with the oil content in their body. Um, you're probably right. But yeah. man, the, those small lake trout, you can deep fat fry them. You can smoke them. You can do lots of things and with them and they taste good. Bake them. Yep. Oh, they're so good. Yeah. They're, I, I don't mind little lake trout at all. And speaking of that, um, you know, they're really putting forth some effort down in flaming gorge to get rid of some of those little lake trout. I think they've even got like some incentives where they've released tagged fish that are worth so much money if you can catch them and they've got special tournaments where you can't keep or turn in any of these fish that are under or over like 24 inches they're trying to encourage people to to take some of those small lake trout home down there which is a good idea I mean it's kind of like you don't I mean those little lakers can really take a toll on the food source so yeah they really are delicious they're good to eat yeah I've had them out of Flaming Gorge Granby jackson lake i mean all the places i've caught the little pup ones i mean they taste really good yeah yep especially smoked 
Yeah, I, you, yeah, I just got a smoker for Christmas, so yeah. Well, you better get down there and catch some pipes. <laughs> I know, man. I'm looking up. forward to using that sucker. It's been too long. I've been needing one of those for a long time. So, I had a question I had to ask you because my buddy Seth and I, we were debating this when he came in October. He lives in Idaho, and mm-hmm. he came down to fish with me, and we were talking about what are the prettiest of the salmonid species because, I mean, you you do artwork, Right. So you're very detailed, like looking at each fish and looking at the color patterns and all that. And he and I were debating back and forth and we were kind of stuck between this is going to, it's probably going to make you laugh a little bit because it, it, Arctic char just color up so pretty yeah. when they spawn. And then you have golden trout, which are just gorgeous all the time. And then you have fall browns, which can be really spectacular yep. and spawning brook trout. So if, in your opinion, you know, what's the prettiest of all of those or the most desirable looking in your man, opinion? There's nothing like a fall spawn brown trout, man. I mean, to get me excited. I mean, gosh, they're so pretty. Part of that might just be because you see that color change in them. You know what I mean? And so maybe I can appreciate it a little bit more. It's kind of like you see a brook trout. If, if you've never seen a fish <laughs> or a trout <laughs> and you throw, if I think of it in terms of that, like I've never seen one before um, because I've got all these little built-in biases towards these fall browns that are so bright and orange and just so cool looking um but i think if i'd never seen one before i had no kind of uh connection with any of them i mean you look at a brook trout and that's a cool looking fish these bright red spots surrounded by this bright blue spot and then this kind of like salamander style pattern on their back Mm. this yellow on bright green and then the the white you know fins on the the white-sided pectoral fins rest of that fin is black and bright orange i mean that's pretty stunning too but there's goldens too <laughs> <laughs> you sound like us just, i just talked can't. for like 35 <laughs> minutes about this <laughs> if you had to say which is the i just have to say goldens if you were right now i could change sure. my mind in five minutes <laughs> i mean goldens are gorgeous how about you david what do you think <laughs> you know i still like the color of those, those spawning bricks that they are yeah brook, yeah they're cool man awesome. they're cool i could change my mind i yeah. could go with brookies those, <laughs> those worm trails on their backs and well and even tiger trout like i look at tiger trout and they're cool too they're just a especially catch cool them at the fish. right time or yeah. in some clear water man. um yeah that's a pretty fish they are but yeah i could go with brookie man i don't know they're so cool that's why i love painting them all <laughs> yeah i know i, I love your paintings because of that well, thanks so, man you talked about this a little bit in the questionnaire but uh you know i know you're a big hunter as well and if you had to pick you know if you were going to go and shoot something and then <laughs> prepare it and eat it what would be your favorite my favorite to eat? Absolutely. Okay. I hope people are ready for this I'm because ready. they're going to be like, you're cr- antelope. I agree, <laughs> man. I agree. So like I said, I've shot, I think th- 12 or 13 antelope now um, with my bow. And um, I think if you can, if you kill them quick, like they're, they're done quick, you make a great shot and they fall over and they're done. They're not running across the countryside and you get them gutted, skinned and without their front legs and head they'll fit into my big coleman cooler and i've always got a big frozen milk jug ready to go if you get those suckers cooled down quick man they're good but they're also one of the wild game meats that i think boy you can either go from really good 
to kind of sketchy pretty quick if you don't do it just right. And I think so many people have had experiences with kind of the sketchy side, not getting them cooled down like right away, or they've run half a mile before they fall over, even whatever. Yeah, they go from great to kind of sketchy pretty quick. But I find if it's a quick, clean kill, and man, you get that sucker taken care of quick, um, I love them. I, I think they taste as good as elk, but they're they're uh, more tender. <laughs> so so what do you say to the guy that's yelling at his speaker right now on his phone saying, no, elk are better? Um, just learn to take care of your antelope, man. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know David's in the same camp with, I, I think all three of us. Really? Are. Like I, th- I think nice. antelope if done right is just about as good as you can get. I, I just think, man, I don't know. What do you think, David? I've uh, tested this theory several times and I've taken antelope backstrap and cow elk backstrap, you know, so usually a, a later season, cleaner harvest. No, we're not talking about running bull elk. And I've cooked them, prepared them exactly the same way, put them on the plate and not told anybody what it is. And every time the antelope is gone and they're asking for more of that and the Mm -hmm. elk is still sitting on the plate. People eat it, but it's a little tougher. When the antelope's done right, it's so much easier to chew and softer and just better. And I think it comes right down to, Zach, you you touched on, I don't know if it's an antelope you shoot and runs for a mile. I don't know if it's lactic acid or if it's just that animal that much hotter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I 100% believe that if you get that animal, antelope, you know, you're harvesting them at 90 to 100 degrees. You need to get them skinned, gutted, and cooled right now. Not in a half hour, right now. And they're all, I mean, we always have a few day on our tags and then we get as many back tags as we can. And I think there's been one antelope out of all those that even in the burger was like, yeah, that's that antelope. I, we just love antelope meat. Heck yeah. I mean, I, I don't know when I hear like people I know or students of mine at the school that are like, I ask them, what are you going to do with your antelope? Well, we're just going to jerk your sausage. Hold I'm like, you are making a big mistake. I'm telling you, but I think, uh, if properly, or properly taken care of, man, they're, they're good. And elk would be right up there with them though. I mean, just a little bit tougher if you're, especially if you're dealing with bulls which is primarily what i'm usually going after with my bow yeah i'd say antelope if i had to choose one yeah a couple of years ago i got a nice buck under a pivot out here not too far just a few miles down the road from where we're at right now and that i got it on ice right away and man that was some of the best eating my wife was like man that is so good and you know i i was one of those people growing up like we didn't handle them quite properly, you know, like as far as getting them on ice right away. Mm -hmm. And it does make a difference. Yeah. It's a huge difference. And you know, even if they're out there nibbling on sagebrush and you're not hunting antelope off these, you know, fields and whatever, they still taste good. When I shot my first one, brought the first one I ever shot into the processor. He said, well, what do you want? I said, well, don't people just usually make jerky out of these things? And he's like, well, no. He said, "I, I actually like antelope better than deer said really i said well then give me this many steaks and this much burger and whatever and this many roasts and from that day on i was like yeah they're good man <laughs> there's no <laughs> point in just jerking those suckers if you take care of them right for sure so it's good stuff yeah well we need to talk about another sponsor so we're going to talk about bow spider so david um i know you've been out traveling you got ata coming up uh tell us what's going on with bow spider yeah we're just uh forging forward for the next year it's uh looking to be a good 2022 uh there will be some new products eventually i'm not going to say when or what but they're in the works uh i'm busy hunting at the moment 
So, you know, that's, uh, we'll get, we'll get some of the hunting done and then we'll get, uh, we'll be at ATA. So I don't know if this will be out before ATA happens, but definitely the archery trade association show can be, uh, a fiasco, but it's, it's a good time. So we will be there. And then we're on to spring shows. That's awesome, man. You know, if you haven't tried out the bow spider packing system, best thing to do is go to bowspider.com, get you one ordered. And I can tell you if you're a 3D shooter, if you're a hunter, anything in between carrying around a compound bow, it's a great way to go hands-free, especially if you got a lot of trail walking out here in Wyoming or Utah or Montana. It makes a big difference for you. So go again, go to bowspider.com to get a hold of one of those. And Zach, I wanted to talk a little bit about your artwork here to kind of wrap up the show because yeah. you do incredible work thanks and i know you worked for cabela's they commissioned you to do artwork and i remember seeing those catalogs and and seeing some of your artwork there tell me a little bit about how that kind of came to be and kind of how that's morphed now into your own business um selling art yeah so i've always enjoyed art as we talked about earlier since i was a kid i went to college on a track scholarship as well as an art scholarship so while i was there long story short i was trying to double major play football and track at the same time and i learned because of my crummy study habits that i couldn't do two sports and two majors so i <laughs> decided to stick with the art major and uh track and uh right after or right out of college, I, I applied for one job and that was as a package designer for Cabela's. And so got that job. And uh, my job was to create like boxes for sleeping bags and hang tags for their waterproof jackets and signs and things like that. So it was more digital art type stuff. Um, but while I was doing that, I did have opportunities to work on some catalog covers and use some of my fine art skills, I guess, in association with my, my digital art stuff. But I always continued to do kind of my painting in my free time as well and kind of learned how to go about getting prints made because I wasn't a real prolific painter. I mean, I was working full time as a graphic designer and in my free time usually, and it's still that way. I wish it wasn't sometimes, but it's just the way it is. I'm fishing and hunting, man, in my free time and I'm not real prolific painter. <laughs> right. But back in the day, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago, I kind of learned the benefits of making, creating prints where they take your original and they create prints. And so I started creating a lot of prints, started doing shows around this part of the country in the summertime and just selling artwork through shows and then got a website built and sell my artwork through my website. Right now, all of that stuff is on hold because I'm <laughs> trying to get my very patient twins their own rooms downstairs like i said they're 13 <laughs> now and my basement used to be my quote-unquote studio sure and i tore that sucker down to the studs here last spring and i've been working on getting it all re-drywalled and totally redone down there so currently i'm doing absolutely zero artwork really <laughs> trying to get that sucker done but, i understand yeah but i have been scratching that itch a little bit so, and taking some workshops and whatnot so of all the things you've done so far which is your favorite my favorite paintings um your favorite which of your painting which is your favorite painting you've done so far i think if i had to pick one of my favorite you know back when i was in college i painted a it's a watercolor painting of two bluegills with a golf ball breaking through the water above their heads and it's the amount of work i put into that i i still think that's maybe my 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 favorite piece um I painted all that from live reference. I had like a 200 gallon fish tank in my dorm room and I would go out and I caught these bluegills in one of the local ponds there near Shattern and 
don't know if this is legal or not, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I threw them in that tank uh, and, uh, I would kind of pin them in a corner with a shelf <laughs> that I had <laughs> in my dorm room. There was a loose shelf on one of the bookshelves and I would take that shelf and I would shove it in the fish tank and I would kind of corral the fish into the corner and I would sketch them real quick um, in kind of the position or the pose I needed. And then I would let them swim free again. And, uh, so I used the bluegills for reference. And then I actually, while I was bass fishing one day, um, pulled some aquatic plants that, uh, were out in the, in the lake and I put those in the tank and they actually survived for about the plants for about two weeks. So I used those for reference. And then I took a golf ball and I put a screw in it and I tied fishing line to it. And back in the day I had an old high eight video camera and I set that up on a tripod by my tank and then I would drop that golf ball in the water and pull it back out with the fishing line over and over again and then I could review that footage on that old video camera and I would still frame it and I look at the bubble bubble pattern coming off the the golf ball Mm -hmm. and so I composed and created that whole painting off all from just those live references and it was kind of cool it's still probably my favorite just because of the effort that went into it i guess <laughs> and you've got that painting on your website yeah that yeah i've got prints of that for sale yeah. yeah yeah it's a cool one i saw that one and i was like oh that's pretty neat yeah and then there's a follow-up that one's called it happens and then there's a follow-up it's called mulligan and it's of a largemouth bass it's kind of eyeballing a golf uh-huh. ball that looks like it's just hit the bottom it's kind of a bluegill back behind him but that one uh, when i was painting that my son was oh man he was pretty little he's probably younger than five but I was in my studio slash basement. I look over and he's sitting there with a crayon and I put about a month worth of work into that painting at that time. And I look over and he's sitting there coloring on that painting, <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> trying to be like dad. And I'm like, Oh no. <laughs> but, uh, you wouldn't notice if you didn't know <laughs> that that thing had any crayon on it. I did my best to get rid of it. But, uh, yeah, my son had a little part to play in, in, mulligan the follow-up to that but <laughs> so if people wanted to go buy one of those prints um because you also have a lot of incredible trout um my favorite is the brown trout of course right. we've talked about that before but um if someone wanted to go out and buy one of those pieces get one of those prints maybe they have somebody they want to get a nice gift for or something like that where do they go to do that well, I've got, I've got them in the fly shop there in Lander and probably the easiest way is to either get on my website and you can do everything there, order a print, we ship it off to you. Or if you're local or semi-local, um, you can just give me a call and I'd be happy to hook you up. We can do custom sizes too. You know, I, I have kind of standard sizes, but then um, I can order or print myself custom sizes. So, And the website? It's just Zach Even Art dot com okay. or zach even art dot com okay. either one will get you there so okay, perfect yep. so what's next on the horizon oh man on my horizon <laughs> it's getting that dang basement done so i can get my studio and stuff uh up and running um and get some painting going because i've been uh, like i said doing some workshops and stuff and i'm itching to get back kind of into that mode so I'm guessing late spring, I'm going to try to have that basement done before turkey season starts. And, uh, yeah, so I'm planning on doing quite a bit of fishing this winter between basement, um, projects, but, uh, yeah. And then spring turkey or yeah, spring archery turkey. And then, um, yeah, just same old, same old (laughs) (laughs) getting outside as much as I can. So 
good deal. Well, it's been really fun having you on the podcast. We'll have to bring you back on so we can talk about more hunting specific stuff. Cause I know you really enjoy that as well. And you, you really spend a lot of time doing both, which is kind of unique. Yeah. As much as I can. I mean, being a teacher and stuff, sometimes that cuts into my, my September's, but, uh, yeah, I do what I can for the time that I have. Sometimes I kind of, uh, little bit jealous of those people who can take all of september but (laughs) yeah but yeah man i'd be more than happy to come back like i said i can ramble on and on and on about hunting and fishing so (laughs) it's good to finally get you in here and get this done i know we've been talking about it for a while so i'm grateful for you taking the time and oh my pleasure man it's fun it's always fun to talk about lake trout so yeah heck yeah or anything (laughs) or any fishing right that's right this is the end of our second year, David and I've been doing this now already. And it's really hard for me to kind of believe that at this point, because we started in December of 2019 and it's already been two years. I don't know about you, David, but that seems kind of crazy to me. It's crazy. And we're starting to see some downloads and subscribers. So if you want to help the podcast, uh, definitely tell your friends, share it out, but subscribe and download. Yes. And we, I actually just discovered this the other day. If you're listening on Spotify, they now have a rating system. So you can actually rate us on Spotify. So do that. Uh, Rate us on Apple, give us reviews that helps us move up the charts, but we really appreciate everybody listening to the podcast. If you guys have any feedback or, you know, you want to hear a specific topic, send us an email, let us know what it is and uh, we'll get that going. And again, thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.